0: Saturday morning, cause we won't be cynical or radical but Was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Do we think it'll suddenly suck? Now we're cheated and all grown up and There was so much that we loved. Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a virus or will it be fun? Decades later, will it still hold up? This is when we were Hello, and welcome back to the When We Were Young podcast. On our last episode, we revisited Karate Kid with Becky and special guest Chelsea. And with this episode, we're rolling with just me and Chris, along with a special guest. Chris, take it away.
1: So this episode is going to be a little bit different than most of ours, which are usually centered around one film. This one is continuing our discussion of The Karate Kid from the previous episode, but because the movie is such a good movie about mentorship and life lessons, we decided to bring in the perfect guest for this episode. That's Chris Clues, who is a speaker and author of the new book Raised on the 80s, his third book that looks back at movies of the 80s to discover some fun lessons that you can use at work and in your own life. The new book has chapters on movies we've previously covered, like Die Hard and The Breakfast Club, as well as some that I hope we cover, like Dead Poets, Society, Trading Places, and Roadhouse. So Seth and I are here talking to Chris Clues, author and keynote speaker on the 80s, kind of an 80s expert, or at least an 80s guy, as he likes to be called. He's written three books on lessons for life and work that we can learn from the 80s pop culture. And his newest book is Raised on the 80s, one of those three. Thanks for joining us, Chris.
2: Thanks for having me. I I really appreciate it. I just, I want to thank you uh, as podcasters for giving people like me a voice. That's, you know, how we get out there and let people know what we're doing. You provide us with a megaphone and I truly appreciate that.
1: And we appreciate you for keeping the 80s relevant and (laughs) promoting them so that we can talk more about these movies. Yeah, I think we're all in good company of of loving to talk about the movies that we watched when we were young. Obviously, that's the name of our podcast. And one thing that we found that we like to do as we were, you know, kind of putting the podcast together is to talk also about like our experiences of the time, you know, not just what we were watching, but kind of what the whole environment of our lives was like at that time and what we noticed when we were kids. So I was wondering if you wanted to start off just by kind of like setting the scene of like what your experience of the 80s was like, like how old were you uh, when you were experiencing some of this stuff and just what was life like for you back then?
2: Yeah. So I, uh, I grew up in uh, Baltimore, a, a suburb of Baltimore and grew up with a dad who had a small production company. So I was around sets at a very, very young age. Uh, running cable and getting donuts for people. And and so I grew up a little bit around entertainment, and that's kind of why I'm here today writing these books and talking about 80s movies and 80s pop culture. And actually, my friends and I made a little movie when I was a kid, about 13 years old, 14 years old. We had a camcorder, and back then you had to plug it in and charge it, and you'd get like two hours out of it, and then you had to charge it again for another six
0: hours. Nice. What did that record onto?
2: It was uh, VHS.
0: Like full-size VHS tapes? Okay.
2: Full-size VHS and we made a movie called California Bones instead of Indiana Jones. <laughs> it was
0: really awful. Awesome.
2: But uh,
1: That's
0: great.
2: Yeah, but it, it was also great at the same time.
1: I read about that in one of the chapters in one of the books. And I was actually going to ask about that because it reminded me so much of The Fablemans, which just came out. You might not have seen it yet, but it's the movie about Steven Spielberg's childhood where he kind of is making movies as a child and, you know, coming up. And obviously it ended a little differently for him than than for you. But um, <laughs> I just <laughs> yeah. thought that was a fun echo of... of you know, a movie that now is like about the guy who made the movies. You know, that kind of set the tone for what childhood in the '80s uh, looks and, and feels like to um, our generation and and you know a lot of others, I think as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I did hear that California Bones was a uh, influence or inspiration for the next Indiana Jones film. I mean, I only <laughs> heard that just you know people talking on the side a little bit.
0: So I don't know we'll if say. I would promote that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you've seen that trailer, but. what's it called like the the dial of something (laughs) microwave dial dial of
1: destiny dial
2: of destiny yeah
1: i think it's better than kingdom of the crystal skull which was just like already like its own title yeah and then you add indiana jones and the and it's just like it's much much too long of a title
2: I'm kind of glad they're wrapping it up with this one. You know, that's something that I really, when we talk about 80s movies and all of the remakes that are happening and, and, and how disappointing they are, I really, I'm not a fan of the remakes for a number of reasons. But one is because these iconic characters can only be played by the person who made them iconic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how good the actor or actress is or how big of a name they are. Beverly Hills Cop 4 is coming out with Eddie Murphy as Axel Foley. Right. Which is great. You know, I guess if they were going to cast it, maybe they would have considered like Kevin Hart. I love Kevin Hart, but not Axel Foley. And so I see these remakes of these classic iconic films, and they're doing it with Patrick Swayze movies, which I am a huge Patrick Swayze fan. We talked earlier before the podcast about how my dog is named Bodie after his character from Point Break. I love Patrick Swayze, and I get upset every time they remake his movies on a number of levels, but I just don't understand why they're gonna remake movies with iconic characters. I think they should go back and look at some of the 80s movies that maybe flew under the radar that still have a great story to tell and remake those. There's a huge catalog of 80s movies that could be remade that don't have have A quote unquote iconic character in them where people are going to look at that and say, But that's not that person. That's not that character.
1: Yeah, I feel like they're overly literal a lot of times with these uh, remakes, you know, and, the, and they feel like they need to like recreate the character with a new actor or something. And it's like, well, all you really need to do is recreate kind of the spirit of it, I think, because that's what people, you know, connect to and let, let the, the character be iconic with, you know, the original performance and just kind of try and do something a little bit new with it that just feels like it's in the right spirit.
0: Well, and so often, the spirit of it is the first thing that gets jettisoned in the, yeah. in the making of the remake. I had another question like kind of about your your origin story, sir. <laughs> Yeah. I don't like to generalize about people based on their perceived age, but it does seem like you're from a slightly different generation than Chris and I are. And so I was like curious about any of the differences in terms of how you took in pop culture. Definitely having a dad who makes movies is like a whole different level and world of exposure to film and filmmaking than most anyone gets, but I was watching your speaker reel and it starts with a VHS tape being put into a VCR. And you mentioned that VHS camcorder, but I was also wondering what were your primary ways of taking in new movies or new shows? And like, were you aware and were you kind of conscious (laughs) aware of like pop culture stuff when like VHS and VCRs were first coming around?
2: Yeah. So my dad would be so happy to hear that he was, uh, Labeled a movie maker. Uh, He was, he was, uh, he actually did, you know, corporate video uh, at the time and a little bit of commercial work and then also worked at PBS. That's where he kind of, you know, cut his teeth, so to speak, on on some PBS shows as well. So, yeah, you know, it was very different because you had limited ways to access content, very limited ways. In fact, you know, I, up until the point that cable really emerged, uh, we really had a couple of television stations. (laughs) And that was about right. it. And then you went to the movies and you paid two bucks for your ticket and you went in, and you watched the movie and movies were in the box in the theater for, you know, I think ET was in the theater for 56 or 58 weeks. Uh, it wasn't yeah, three weeks now. We,
0: <laughs> that's one thing we go over in the show that still can still continues to amaze me. It's just how long movies were in theaters
1: for. And how many of, like, great movies were in the theater at the same time? I mean, we're talking about Karate Kid in this episode, and 84 is, you know, known as one of those years where it's just, like, so many, like, iconic movies came out. Were you at all aware, like, at the time, like, how good you had it, or did that just seem normal to you because you were, (laughs) you know, growing up with this? I mean, like, when you look at the box office, the top 10 of, like, almost any week in 84, you're like, wow, this is like a almost like a top 10 of the 80s, you know, best movies of the 80s or most iconic movies of the 80s list. So yeah, I was just wondering.
2: <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, it was insane. I, and we didn't realize it at the time because it was just kind of what we had in front of us. And the same goes for the music, by the way. I tell people just Google any month, any week of any year in the 80s, top 40. And it's astonishing what you see because you'll see, you know, Kenny Rogers next to LL Cool J next to Motley Crue and then Depeche <laughs> Mode and we'll throw in like some uh, Debbie Gibson and then of course Prince because Prince or Madonna was always on the charts, one of those two, or Michael Jackson was always on the charts. And what you saw was kind of something for everybody. And I feel like that's what was happening in the theaters, in the movies as well, is that you look at a top 10 and you really see all these different genres represented. In fact, so much so that, you know, my first R-rated movie was because I bought a $2 ticket to E.T. and I snuck into Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It was the best decision I ever made in my life. Awesome. Still to this day. You know, 40 years later, whatever it is, 39 years later. So, the best decision I ever made in my life was taking that $2 and sneaking into fast times (laughs) and then hiding from the ushers because we used to have ushers back then that would walk through with flashlights to make sure that, you know, people were of age that were in the theater. And if you were talking, they told you to be quiet or they threw you out. They did the work of ushing back then. Ushing. Yeah, exactly. And people would say, shh. And then everybody would be quiet. It was really weird. So yeah, there was really no option. And then of course we had the video stores that popped up and that was huge to have the ability to walk into this store where you had all of these different options. Some you knew about and some you didn't. It was was pretty cool. That was was a big moment for
0: us. One thing we've talked about on the podcast is I I know you mentioned you had a a Blockbuster video background on your video screen and we've talked about Blockbuster a lot because that was certainly formative. But like for me, what's out even more are the kind of mom and pop video shops that were around before blockbuster that blockbuster kind of basically shut down they like amazoned the hell out of those but yeah the community making aspect of those places was really special to me growing up
2: for sure and i do also tell people i say listen it's it's a real thing that the human algorithm that you had inside of a of, of a local mom and pop store or even the blockbusters i feel like we're so much better than the algorithms we have today when they recommend things to you on netflix or Amazon Prime, or whatever streaming service you're using. And you kind of think, how the hell did they come up with that? That has nothing to do with anything I've ever watched. And I remember going to the video store, and and the movie that I wanted wasn't there. And somebody in the store would say, well, hey, if you're looking for this movie, and it's not here, it's not going to be back tonight. But here's four or five that if you like this one, I, I think you'll like these too. And they were usually spot on.
0: Well, and not only that, but like they'd give you the, you know, four or five or whatever that were kind of in line with that, but they would also give the curveball of like, well, you like this thing about it. There's this one though that's totally off the wall, but give it a try. <laughs> give it a shot. Yeah. 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 And the whole model of the algorithm and the curation by algorithm is designed to. To rule out the the rough edges, to you know, kind of rule out all the curveballs in a way that I do really think kind of deprives people of the opportunity to be exposed to and take in things that they wouldn't
1: necessarily.
2: Yeah, explore, and you know, there's, there. I I do, I I do think I do miss somewhat the romanticism of going into a video store on a Friday night, not knowing if you're going to get the movie that you want to get. And maybe waiting (laughs) by the return bin and hoping that each time a movie popped in there, that it was going to be the one that you were looking for and that there weren't two people in front of you waiting for the same thing. So going and seeing the board of, you know, the new releases or what's coming and it would have a date next to it. And that date might be three months away, but you put that in your calendar. You're like, I cannot wait for that movie to get to the video store.
1: Oh, yeah. I had a countdown to Twisters released on VHS, obviously a little bit <laughs> late, later than the 80s. But I was that age where you in my journal, like every day at school, we had a journal and mine was a like, countdown to Twister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I do feel Sorry. like there's something about going into that store that just cements movies into your consciousness a lot more than, you know, scrolling through a huge list of them on netflix or whatever um because we've talked to a lot about on the podcast it's like movies that we maybe even didn't see at the time but because we saw like the poster in the video store and just the amount of time that these movies were on the shelves and physically going to see them like plants them in our consciousness in a way that i feel like movies aren't as widespread and, and widely known as they used to be because it is all digital and it just doesn't plant in your brain the same way
2: yeah i mean i you know without blockbuster or you know the local video store and the posters i would have never seen the talk Avenger or Chopping Mall, awesome. Which are uh, two fantastic B movies from the eighties, and uh, I would never have seen those otherwise. And you mentioned Twister. I mean, Bill Paxton, just amazing. And of course, uh, I remember the first time I saw him was as Chet in uh, Weird Science.
1: Nice. Yeah, Bill Paxton is one of our patron saints. I think of the podcast. Absolutely. He's in a lot of you know the great James Cameron movies. Um, he's he pops up in a lot of those, and so. Yeah, he's one of our, our very favorite. Our first episode was actually on Twister. So I think we, we have a very soft spot for anything Paxton or anything tornado related <laughs> here. <laughs> well, I'm a
2: huge fan of Bill Paxton. I mean, he, he doesn't come to the level for me of Patrick Swayze. Who could? Why I love Patrick Swayze so much. I don't know what it is about him and, and the connection that I feel to him. But the movies, I think part of it is the, the movies that he starred in came out at times where they were kind of the perfect movie for me at that age. So Red Dawn, for example, I think I was 14 when that came out. I mean, Wolverines, we're all yelling Wolverines at school, putting, putting Wolverines on our binders. And I mean, that was just the perfect (laughs) age for that movie, for me, for that movie to come out. And then you just go down the line of all of the, the great movies that he had. In the 80s and even into, you know, the 90s, we talked about Point Break as well. But The Outsiders, you know, I have some great lessons from The Outsiders in my second book. Actually, one of the reasons that I do what I do today, that I left the corporate world, corporate marketing after 20 years, was because of a line from Johnny Cade in The Outsiders where he said, you still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. That resonated with me at 46 years old. I'm like, yeah, I still have time. Why, why am I not doing what I want? What's holding me back from doing that? And that came from The Outsiders. So. But there is one Patrick Swayze movie that I have not seen.
0: I know what it is, so I okay. shall refrain. <laughs> I, I do not know what it
1: is, uh, so I, I'm dying to Come on,
0: Chris, guess. Guess. Any idea?
2: Chris? No. No. <laughs> Come on. It's, it's probably his most iconic.
1: Go. Oh, Dirty Dancing?
2: Yes, I've never seen Dirty Dancing. Okay. And I I can officially say I am the only person that has put baby in the corner uh, because I never saw it. You might want to
1: go check on her. She's been in there for a while now, I guess. She's
2: been there for a while. I'm going to get a t-shirt that says, I put baby in the corner. Yeah, I never saw it. And there's a story behind it because whenever I do my keynote speaking engagements and I get to this point where I'm talking about Patrick Swayze and the outsiders and some of the great lessons from the movie. And I mention that, of course, there's audible gas from the crowd. They get sometimes very upset with me. And I feel like they're going to put me in a stockade and throw like rotten fruit and tomatoes at me. But there's a reason that I never saw it. And it's because I graduate when I graduated high school in 1988, you know, we had our prom and I wanted the theme song to be Home Sweet Home from Motley Crue, got voted down very quickly. <laughs> and we ended up with now I had the time of my life from yeah. dancing.
0: I can see that coming. Uh, I can see that one coming. That's not a big shocker there.
2: <laughs> had to hear it like 150 times that night. It was on all the glassware, all the favors, and I, I had to dance to it maybe 80 times that night. I just, I have night terrors about that song, and I've decided that I'm just not going to watch the movie now. That's it.
0: Well, at least, at least that song is played in every single Boner Pill commercial <laughs> and Caribbean <laughs> Cruise Line right. ad that exists. I know. So funny enough, you were in good company here, Chris, because <sighs> I too have not seen Dirty Dancing. Yeah.
1: Oh, you know we're doing a dancing episode. You know we got to do that. We got to do footloose slash dance. There's there's all kinds of eighties dance offs that we got to have. Oh, I
0: know. <laughs> I live in mortal terror of that day. Well, you need to, you need to put on the video for
2: that one if you're going to do it.
1: It's funny you mention Dirty Dancing that song because I feel like that song has come back around for like younger generations as so like kitschy it's kind of cool whereas like i think our version of that song is probably the titanic song and my heart will go on because that's the one i remember (laughs) you know playing at school dances and stuff where it was just like really are we and i love titanic but that song has never been something that i want to put on and on (laughs) so i think every every generation has that movie song that's just like oh god like please turn this off
2: yeah, that one. And and also, of course, She's Like the Wind uh, that Patrick Swayze sang, which, you know, I love him for, but there are some songs from the 80s that you just, I hear them. I want to turn them off, but sometimes I just can't. And like, we <laughs> built this city. Oof. I feel like I need to turn that off every time it comes on, but I just can't. I can't do it. I roll up the windows and I sing it.
0: Yeah, we recently did mannequin and talked about uh, nothing's gonna stop us now, and that's absolutely another one of those songs. I wanted to ask you, kind of related to the swaziness of it all, like how did you start drawing these particular lessons from eighties pop culture? Like were those were those things story elements from these movies that had always stuck in your mind, or was there like one particular one that just broke through from the pack at some point and kind of led you to revisit or reconsider these other movies? I'm glad you asked that question because yes, there were two,
2: actually, I mentioned the one earlier about from the outsiders. So Basically, you know, I was in corporate marketing for twenty years or so and I just had gotten to the point where I enjoyed marketing, but I felt like there was something else out there for me. I just didn't know what it was. Mm. You know, I, I was trying to figure out what is it that I'm good at that I can do that I would love to do every day, wake up and love to do, and I had no idea what it was. So I came home, I'm having a self pity party of one, which I tend to do, <laughs> and I'm watching The Breakfast Club. I'd seen it a hundred times or so. And Bender says, Screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. I had heard that line however many times, but I never really listened to it. Mm. And I sat up off of my couch. I was 46 years old. And I thought, I, my screws have fallen out. I'm in an imperfect <laughs> place. Like, What am I going to do? Am I just going to put those screws back in the same way? And as Henry David Thoreau said, who's not an 80s pop culture icon the 1830s. <laughs> yeah, I think so. 1830s, 1840s. I don't think he was in the 1980s. Maybe. I don't know. You know but I he, thought uh, he was <laughs> one of
1: the kids at the breakfast club. No?
2: He very well could have been. And he said, you know, the massive men, we'll call it the massive people, the massive people lead lives of quiet desperation. And I was leading a life of quiet desperation. It's pretty amazing that he recognized this in the 1830s or 1840s because we weren't all sitting in cubicles at that point yet. And so he was already seeing his quiet desperation. I was living quiet, a quiet desperate life of quiet desperation. And Oliver Wendell Holmes, another not 80s pop culture uh, icon, uh, said something to the effect of, you know, one of the sad, saddest things is somebody who dies with their song still inside of them. And I, I felt like there was something in there for me. And so that Johnny Quote from the Outsiders: You still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. And I decided to write an article, a LinkedIn article, on what the Breakfast Club teaches us about problem solving and this idea of screws falling out and how we put them back in. And do we do we put a whole new set of screws in and a whole new door frame and a whole new door and walk out to a new journey? And that's what I did. And people responded to the article. And I, I was kind of overwhelmed, like, wow, I'm getting a great response to this. So I I wrote one about Ferris Bueller and work-life balance and got more response and decided maybe I had something here. And I was still working a full-time job, a very tiresome full-time job, a lot of hours, a lot of travel. And so at nights and on the weekends, I was writing this little book about what 80s pop culture teaches us about today's workplace. And I threw it out there, 60 pages. It would have been next to like, you know, it would have been in like a Spencer's gift store back in the day. It would not <laughs> have been in Walden's books in the mall. It would have been in like Spencer's right, gifts. Right. you remember Walden's books.
0: Oh, I do. <laughs> Believe me, I do. Yeah. fond <laughs> memories.
2: Every bookstore, every mall had three bookstores usually, or two bookstores. Uh, and so I, people started buying it. Once I realized it wasn't my friends and my family, I thought, Okay. Well, you know, what do I do now? I, I built a website. I positioned myself as a speaker. I had done some stage work when I was younger, and so I felt very comfortable on stage. And I thought I can do this. And suddenly, I started getting hired for speaking engagements. I'm like, well, now I got to figure out what I'm going to say. And uh, and I kind of went from there. And I was still working this full time job. I wrote the second book. Had a publisher. Same thing. Workplace lessons from 80s pop culture. And then I had a friend who was a, a speaking agent and she said, Hey, listen, if you leave your job and you dedicate yourself hundred percent to this, I will help you find speaking gigs. And so I did, and it was scary as hell. And, uh, you know, I, I talk about the, how every day was just kind of the being back at 13 or 14 years old, the excitement of putting on my football pads and running out and hitting somebody and getting hit versus the terror of being at my middle school dance and trying to get the courage up to ask someone to dance that I wanted to dance. That was every day. Yeah. And now I sit in front of you with three books, this raised on the eighties, which focuses more on life lessons from eighties, pop culture and a keynote speaking career. And it's all because of John Bender and Johnny Cade.
1: It sounds like you went through something kind of similar that we did with the podcast, which we started doing about six years ago, which was also kind of on the cusp of some of this like 80s resurgence. And I was like surprised at like how big some of this stuff became because like we thought, you know, we were kind of exploring a bit of a niche at the time and then it ended up not being that so I was wondering if you had any ideas on why the 80s in particular are resonating with people now or why they've come back in such a big way
2: yeah and so I uh, I did a little bit of research on the history of pop culture and my what I found was that pop culture typically comes in 30 year cycles hmm. so when you get 30 years past, Decade, that's typically when you see a little bit of the resurgence of pop culture, but we've never seen it to this extent. And we're 42 years removed from 1980, which for a guy that's 52, it's pretty terrifying. You know, I now feel like I'm in a competition (laughs) to see who can live longer with everybody that I grew up with. Like that's where we are now. Once you pass 50, (laughs) it becomes a competition. I looked back and I thought, I saw these like this, this, these 30 year cycles, and I thought about the 80s, and there was a little bit. You had Stand By Me that was set in the 50s, you had Back to the Future that went back to the 50s, of course. There was a little bit of music with uh, the Stray Cats. And so anyway, you had this little bit of resurgence. People were pegging their pants, kind of like they did. We were slicking back our hair a little bit. But that was about it. And it was a pretty small moment. And here we are in 2022, and it's only getting stronger. And so I think think you have to take 80s pop culture. And I've tried to be really unbiased about this because it is the decade that I grew up in. But I'm finding it harder and harder not to believe that the pop culture in the 80s is just different from any other decade. And I believe we're just kind of on the surface of where this is going to go. And the reason I say that is because I feel like 80s pop culture was the last decade where pop culture was not manufactured. It feels like by the mid 90s that things were kind of being manufactured in that proverbial lab. And so they were tweaking it and doing everything they could to make it absolutely perfect, whether it was a pop singer, music, movies, whatever it was. And so they throw it out there and they'd hammer us over the head until we liked it because they wanted to make their money back, of course. And even if it wasn't very good, they just kept hammering us with it over and over and over again. Well, we talked earlier before the podcast about how in the 80s, there weren't a lot of options to get your content. So there was limited avenues and limited channels for the content to get out there for people to gravitate towards it. And so they didn't have really have an opportunity to hammer us with it. They either had to, they had to put it out there and say, hey, do you like this? And we would say, yeah, we love it. And they'd say, okay, we'll make more of it or no, we don't. And they'd say, okay, let's put that aside. And I feel like that pop culture was made for the consumer more than today. And that's why I think it's resonating that the stories tended to be a little more raw. The characters tended to be a little more realistic. There was the this rawness to the characters and this realness. And we also saw this explosion. I say that it's kind of like somebody took a glitter bomb and threw it against the wall and it exploded with all these wonderful, vibrant colors. And that was all of the experimentation and innovation that was going on in 80s pop culture with the genres of music and movies. In music, Hip hop went from the Sugar Hill gang and maybe like Curtis Blow to all of a sudden you had for every public enemy, you had a young MC. For every young MC, you had like a tribe called Quest or De La Soul. You had, uh, bust, you know, uh, um, you know, bust from bust a move to like, uh, NWA. And so there was like all of these, the genres weren't just a one music genre. They were all these sub genres that were happening as well. And so I think that's another reason why. We're just scratching the surface. People are going back and realizing there's all this pop culture that we haven't even touched yet.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there, but like one thing that really sticks out to me is like what we were talking about earlier in terms of like a 30 year cycle. Just relating like your music analogy to film, I think there's always a cyclical kind of distance between when all the companies that own all the means of production and all the means of distribution realize that they don't know what the fuck they're doing and that they really have no idea what people are going to like. There's a distance between that and the moment where all the executives decide that they actually do know what's best for everyone and that they can predict down to a period exactly what's going to work or not work. There was very much that space, that kind of room for experimentation and failure and creativity in the 80s and, and definitely in the 90s, but in the 90s on a very like generalizing level. But in the 90s, I think that was kind of the waning days of that. And I think it did get to a point, like we recently did an episode about Nickelodeon. Like I think it clearly originated in this place where they knew they didn't know what they were doing. They knew that they didn't know what was going going to actually hit because they were going for this like new audience of like preteen kids who had never been marketed to before and they gave people they gave like the show Pete and Pete I don't know if you knew the the show the adventures of Pete and Pete but that originated because they gave these people who worked in the commercials department the chance to make their own show and so I think that there's the necessity for that kind of space and freedom that doesn't really exist anymore and that's kind of unfortunate, especially in an age where there's so much more technology that enables enables people to create things. But still, it's like all the means of production and the means of distribution and getting that out there into the world and marketing it to people to try to find that audience are still very much in just a few hands.
2: Yeah. And I i don't want to, I don't want to, I don't like to throw around the term lazy, you know, to, it's very It's easy to say that and its generalization, but I do feel like once they see, you mentioned it, once they see something that works and they just keep doing it over and over and over again, and that's not really what was happening in the 80s. And I'll give you another example of that. You, You think about, I go back to the movie Revenge of the Nerds, and I think we laugh at Revenge of the Nerds and we think it's silly, but Revenge of the Nerds was a really important moment in cinema. And the reason it was important is because it took the characters that before everybody made fun of and turned them into the heroes right, and suddenly there was this entirely new group of protagonists and heroes you didn 't need the muscles and the speed and the the John Wayne hat and come into town to <laughs> you know look like the guy or the gal that 's going to save the world you don't you know Ellen Ripley and aliens you know, she looks like she 's going to save the world, of course right so but so did you know Chuck Norris and John Wayne and Arnold Schwarzenegger and all these guys. And they, and and that's great. Like they have their place and it's awesome. And I love those movies, but looking at Revenge of the Nerds, it was a huge moment. We were, we were rooting for them they became the heroes. And it, it set off an entirely new slate of movies where the hero was actually the person that we in the past would have never expected them to be. And there's no Big Bang Theory, by the way, without Revenge of the Nerds, I'm convinced. So it sets us off on this path where we have, you know, Can't Buy Me Love. We talked about that earlier. Ronald Miller is the hero. We're like We're cheering for him. I think the biggest, the best example of that is The Lost Boys, one of my favorite movies from the 80s. And Please, please do not remake it. You know, Kiefer Sutherland might be the greatest vampire ever. I, I, you know, we could have that conversation, but man, was he a great master
0: vampire. I'm astonished it hasn't been remade already. Don't jinx
1: it. Don't jinx
0: it. Oh
2: yeah, please. God. And they can't. The, the soundtrack is amazing, and the guy playing the saxophone. Where,
0: where? How are you gonna do that? Like that. That is like the greatest scene ever. <laughs> that is that is like iconic eighties. The whole look of the movie is so strange, and like the settings and the locales. The fact that they're like shooting it. I think it was the Santa Monica Pier. It definitely yeah. looked like it. You I know, mean, like an, a beachfront arcade. Yeah, that's that's where most vampire movies take place. Sure, <laughs> and that's what made it great. And
2: so I, you know, what what made the movie great in my mind though are the Frog Brothers. You know, again, we have the two Corries in the movie, which you know that the Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, and but the Frog Brothers, who work in their parents' comic book store on the boardwalk. One of them wears army surplus shirts to try to look tough. You know, they wrap these bandanas around their heads, and when you know they meet uh, Corey Haim's character, they say you know, here's our, you know, here's our card. Here's our number, our numbers on the back. Pray you never need to, you know, call us or use it. And he kind of laughs them off. Like, what am I going to have to call you guys for? You're not going to save me from anything, but ultimately they do. They're the ones right. who save the town from the vampires. And there's a really important lesson in there that problem solvers don't come in a one size fits all package. It's something that eighties movies taught us that we didn't really learn before, because if you go back in cinema and you look at the movies and who the heroes were and the protagonists, They were the people that you expect to be the heroes and the protagonists. And suddenly we had these heroes and protagonists we didn't expect. And that's a really important message to carry through life and your workplace, that problem solvers don't come in a one-size-fits-all package. It's a really important lesson.
1: Yeah, and I think that kind of brings us back to the the Karate Kid a little bit, too, because the pitch of that movie, I think, could have been very much, you know, kind of a generic action movie, you know, if you'd cast a a certain kind of kid in it. But, you know, the lesson of that movie is very much more about, you know, taking your time and slowing down. And so I was wondering if you could speak more, because you have a chapter on on that one in uh, one of your books as well. How does that movie kind of fit into what you were just talking about, about kind of unlikely heroes and, and That were given a chance in some of these 80s movies.
2: Yeah, that's great. The Karate Kid and my second book. Yes. There's a lot of great lessons in there. And Mr. Miyagi, for my money, is one of the greatest cinematic characters of all time in that almost every piece of his dialogue actually teaches us something. And when you go back and you watch the movie, and of course it has a great soundtrack and, you know, Peter Cetera's Gloria Love and You're the Best Around is one of my favorite, favorite songs still to this day. I love it. And so Mr. Miyagi teaches us a lot, but one of the really important ones you talked about slowing down. So we all know the wax on wax off, but there's something else that he says to Daniel when he is, you know, teaching him, having him do the chores and he's painting the fence and he thinks he just has to paint this little section. Of course, Mr. Miyagi says, no, 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 the whole fence. And he says, don't forget to breathe, very important. And this line, I feel like, again, I, I often look for the lines that maybe aren't the ones that people would pull out of a movie. They they just not throwaway lines, but just not lines that stick out that we quote in our normal dinner conversations like I do all the time. And uh, hmm. don't forget to breathe, very important, is an important lesson in life about slowing down. And it's really important in the workplace as well. Because stress is like dehydration. By the time you realize you have it, it's too late. And if you've ever had dehydration, and I have, uh, it's, you feel like you're going to die. I mean, legitimately. Uh, and it's f- from a physical sense, it takes several days to get over. A mental sense, several days to get over as well. And there were a lot of things I could have done during that day, like drink water. To keep myself from, from getting dehydrated. I let drink water instead of drinking beer on the golf course while I wasn't drinking water. Then, you know, uh, I don't know, drinking sake at night after working out during the day and thinking I was invincible because I was younger and getting this dehydration. But there are a lot of things I could have done during the day to, to avoid that, and we can do that with stress as well. You know, when you feel it building up, we walk around with stress all the time. So I think we don't realize that we're, it's building up in us until you know we have an event. And so taking that time to breathe, whether that's you know walking your dog, playing with your kids, playing with your cat, having a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, whatever it is, working out, whatever it is that you need to take that that breath. And f- in the workplace for leaders, leadership, it's so important to take that time to breathe yourself. Because we talk about shit rolling downhill, well, stress rolls downhill and it's even worse when it does. And it makes people unproductive and your team members, the people that, that work with you need to know that it's okay, no matter what, to take that time to breathe. You have a meeting coming up at 11, but you're just stressed and overwhelmed. It should be okay to say at 1030, like, look, I need to push this back 30 minutes or an hour. I'm just feeling it right now and I need to take a step back. That allows us to be more productive. It's important to take that space and it keeps us healthy. And that's that's really important as well.
0: Yeah. And I mean, as someone with an anxiety disorder, long time anxiety enjoyer sufferer, that's important advice in a very both metaphorical and literal sense (laughs) where when you're having an anxiety attack, you have to like catch yourself not breathing and be like, oh yeah, no, I actually do have to breathe. It's kind of a basic functional requirement here. 17,000 to 30,000 times a day involuntary
2: because I would be dead if you had to think about breathing. I can tell you that right now. (laughs) But there's a couple of other things he mentions that are lessons as well. And one of them is about the idea of efficiency is absolutely a superpower. We talk about superpowers and there's a lot of superpowers that we talk about. We don't talk about efficiency. Like, what is it? How's efficiency a superpower? But you know, we talk about work, and and even in our lives, efficiency is a superpower. And there's something that you know, Mister Miyagi again says to Daniel. He says, "Daniel, son, secret to punch." is to make the power of the whole body fit inside one inch. That's efficiency. And that's what he's talking about is, you know, and he, in this instance, in this context, he's talking about energy with the, with the puncher in defense of yourself. But that efficiency, you know, can carry across our life and our work as well. This idea that, you know, the power of that punch all comes from one inch inch. And I think that's a really important lesson to remember as well that when you have somebody that you, you know, that you work with or someone in your life who's efficient, that's a superpower because there are not a lot of people who are. And that's why we when we have a product or a service or a company that's really efficient, we're all really impressed by it, but we don't really talk about it as a superpower.
1: Yeah. And I really like how that lesson comes in tandem uh, with the other one from the Karate Kid about learning to breathe, because I think a lot of people feel a lot of pressure to be efficient. But you also have to remember that you need to rest yourself if you're going to be efficient. You can't be efficient like, you know, 24-7 without, you know, taking care of yourself as well.
0: And you need to be like present. Yeah. Rather than trying to exist in the past and the present, the future all at the same time, trying to game everything out in your mind in order to concentrate and put yourself in focus in that way.
2: Absolutely. And yeah, living, absolutely living in the present and and taking that time to breathe will absolutely make you more efficient. And he said one other thing, you know, he also told Daniel, and this is just a a broad lesson for everybody, because I can tell you as I sit here, five and a half years removed from starting this journey and looking back and thinking, wow, you know, I, I got here you know I've, I've done this and this is my life now this is what i get to do i I'm in an airport and somebody asks me what I do and I get to tell them that I'm heading to a keynote to talk about lessons for life and work from 80s pop culture. And I always get the same response. How the hell did you pull that off? (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was a lot of work, but I'm here now. And there's a, something he says to Daniel as well. He says, you know, man or woman who catches flies with chopsticks can accomplish anything. And so, you know, of course, Daniel sets out on his course to catch a fly with chopsticks. And it really is true. I mean, you know, you can get out there and create you, you can accomplish anything. And I, I don't consider myself a motivational speaker. I'm not out there telling people like, Hey, go, you know, I'm going to show you how to walk across hot coals. Cause I wouldn't do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's silly, but I will tell you that, you know, I, I do feel motivated by the things that I've been able to accomplish in the last five and a half years, more so than what I accomplished in the 20 plus years in corporate marketing. And that really excites me. And I, I do feel like I've caught a fly in my chopsticks. It's pretty awesome.
1: That is really awesome.
0: That's absolutely awesome. And I mean, like one thing that struck me as really unique, just like watching the videos on your YouTube and looking at your site, like one really unique thing about your approach is that, you know, basically almost all discussion of pop culture is descriptive. Like even if you're reaching like deep into the lore and the behind the scenes, you're doing that mostly just to describe the story of the movie or the show or like to put that story in the context of creators or its time. but like your speaking work, um, and I'm guessing your books as well are prescriptive because you're taking that lore and that knowledge and really making it into advice and guidance. Um, and on our podcast I think we try to be a bit prescriptive too since we're often talking about like Chris said, not just kind of our experiences rewatching these things now, but also like critically examining the ways that our own perspectives changed over time and how that affected the way that we saw pop culture like growing up and affects how we see it now. Um, so I was wondering like if you if you've really changed your tune radically on any of these movies either like in terms of drawing a totally different lesson than one that you'd originally drawn from them or in terms of the lesson that you drew from them like changing your opinion of the movie as a whole.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I when I was growing up, what these movies did for me is they entertained me. And that was what I wanted out of them. I wanted to be entertained. That was that was their intention for for me as the consumer and that was my intention as the person that was watching the movie or listening to the music. And as I've gotten older, I have started to look at these movies and, 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 and listen to some of the music in a very, very different way. And some of the characters really have changed for me in terms of how I look at them. We talked earlier about, you know, Plainstrain's Automobiles and Del Griffith and how that is such a great character. And as I get older, I, I, when I watch that movie and I realize, I, I feel like there's so much of the real John Candy in that Del Griffith character.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: And it really is moving when I watch that movie now, especially that scene where Steve Martin really just insults him over and over. And he says, you're like a chatty Cathy doll, except you pull the string. And I, back when I was a kid, I thought it was kind of funny, but now I look at it and I watch it and I'm like, yeah, it's entertaining. But his response to Neil Page, Steve Martin is to say, you know, I like me, you know, my, my, my wife likes me, my customers like me and I'm the real deal. What you see is what you get. And, and that's, uh, that resonates with me so much more in such a different way
0: now. Absolutely.
2: That Del Griffith character is one of my favorites. And I do talk about a lot of lessons from Dell in my first book, but one of them is the idea that you know, we talk about with companies, how we, we talk about how, you know, great companies have a great brand or, you know, a great CEO or a great service or product. But we rarely talk about them needing, having a great salesperson, but ultimately that's what it takes for, you know, a company to be successful, whether it's company of one or company of, you know, a hundred thousand, you need a great salesperson like Dell Griffith, who believes in himself, believes in the product. He's an honest and transparent guy and sells shower curtain rings and does a great job at it. <laughs> if I could just point out a couple of others though, you know, because I, this is really where the bulk of my content comes from, is actually going back and re-watching these movies and saying, whoa, hold on a second. Wow, Jeff Spicoli teaching us something. Prince Akeem from Coming <laughs> to America teaching us uh, really great lessons about leadership. And uh, if I go back to Trading Places, if you've ever seen Trading Places.
1: Yeah, I just watched that for the first time and I was blown away about like just how... How much it had to say, like how much of it felt so relevant to right now.
2: Yeah. Listen, Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis. I just tell people those three are in that movie.
0: Yeah, I've got to watch it. You don't
2: go see that. If you don't go watch it, hey, it's on you.
0: Yeah. Shame on me, honestly.
2: That's right. Shame on you!
0: Yes, that's the overall lesson of the whole podcast. But in particular, husband, <laughs> okay, that's good to know because we're <laughs> yeah. gonna,
2: we're definitely going to do the shame, shame.
0: Good, good.
2: Eddie Murphy plays Billy Ray Valentine, and when we see him in this movie, he's he's this you know, this con man and very very smart guy. But you know, he does his thing on the street to make money, and I won't tell the whole plot about how he ends up in this commodities broker job, but he does. And the morning of this first day at work for him, we've all seen that he's very intelligent. He could do this job with his eyes closed. We all know this as the audience. We can see it in him, but he's not so sure. And so the first day he shows up and he's looking up at the building and Coleman, the butler is standing in front of him. he says to Coleman, what if I can't do this job? You know, what if I'm not what they expected? And Coleman says, just be yourself, sir. They can't take that away from you. Now, there's a lot of lessons in 80s movies about being yourself. I mean, The Breakfast Club has multiple ones about just being who you are. says, you know, we're all pretty bizarre. Some of us are just better at hiding it. That's all. That's a great line about being yourself. He says, you know, just be yourself. They can't take that away from you. But there's something deeper going on there. Here is this guy who is very intelligent. We know he can do the job, but he's questioning himself. And in this day and age, we call that imposter syndrome. That's kind of the buzzword that people use. You know, why me? Why, why, Why did I get this opportunity? So he teaches us a really valued lesson here about questioning yourself and the idea of how confident people question themselves and arrogant people question others. And I get into that lesson in my third book, and I have an entire part of my chapter on this idea of how confident people do question themselves. That's how you get better you continually question yourself. And when you stop questioning yourself, where do you go from there? Well, either you think that you've got it down perfectly and you're the best person ever. And in the words of Enid Strick, the church lady, well, isn't that special? But for the rest of us, you know, we're all mortal human beings and we should be questioning ourselves. Or what do you do? You point fingers and you question other people. That's what arrogant people do. They question others. And so here in this like little scene where, you know, Billy Ray Valentine, Eddie Murphy's character is looking up at the building and he's not sure if you can do it, there's a really valuable lesson in there about the difference between confidence and arrogance.
1: Right now, there's so many people going through changes in their jobs in various different ways. You know, either, you know, a lot of people have lost their jobs in the last couple of years or are rethinking their jobs or are seeking more flexibility in a job. I know the three of us hosts on this podcast have all in the last year have changed our jobs in one way or another. So I was wondering if there's a particular lesson from an 80s movie that you think like kind of really applies to this moment right now that where people are, you know, kind of still in a state of flux and still, um, you know, figuring out what what the future looks like in terms of their employment.
2: Yes, I do. There's actually uh, a few of them, but I'll focus on one from a movie that I think is really underrated from the 80s. And that movie starred Elizabeth Shue and Tom Cruise, if I'm giving anything away. Yeah. You know that one? Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> It also, unfortunately, gave us two songs. that if you ever go to a Caribbean island, you are sure to hear them over and over and over again. Don't worry. Be happy. And uh, Kokomo, if you're on a cruise ship or you're in a Caribbean island, I assure you, you're going to hear those songs and everybody's going to dance and sing.
0: (laughs) Wait, what movie is this? This is Cocktail. Cocktail. Okay.
2: Oh, sorry. I should have said that. It was Cocktail. Cocktail is the movie. Yes.
0: Sorry. (laughs) For all those dumb, uninformed people out there who don't (laughs) know.
2: Shame. Shame.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just throw it in the shame pile. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah. Cocktail really is kind of an underrated movie. We don't talk about cocktail a lot when we talk about the, the great 80s movies. It really kind of flies a little bit under the radar. And it's kind of surprising considering it was Tom Cruise and Elizabeth Shue. But there's a really important lesson in there. And it's a scene where Tom Cruise's character, Brian Flanagan, is a bartender down in the Caribbean. And I won't tell you how he gets down there because we could spend you know minutes talking about that. But he is the bartender. He ends up down there and he's really disappointed in himself. And he's disappointed in himself because he feels like there's something more that he should be doing. He tried to go to business school, really washed out of there a little bit because that's what a lot of really great business people end up doing in actuality. And so he's down there. He's talking to Jordan, who's played by Elizabeth Shue, and they've been kind Kind of hanging out a little bit. And they're sitting at this table, having a drink, a cocktail, and it's during the day, and he starts looking around the table and he says, We sit here surrounded by millionaires. And this is where I think it's like the first reference to a side hustle in a movie, because then he says, You know, you get a bar job to keep your days free for your real gig. Days get shorter and shorter, the nights get longer and longer. Before you know it, your life is just one long night with a few comatose daylight hours. he laughs, he says, Stop feeling so sorry for yourself, Flanagan. And so Jordan reaches out to him, grabs his hand and says, you know, hey, your flugelbinder is out there just waiting for you, waiting to be discovered. And what she's talking about, the flugelbinder is when they're sitting around the table, he's pointing out the millionaires and he's saying you know, look at around us, we have, you know, he points at a toothpick. Somebody made that millionaire, ashtrays, millionaire, the drink umbrellas, millionaires. And then the plastic tip on his shoelaces, he points to when Jordan calls them the flugel binders. And he just says, you know, that's (laughs) their flugel binders. They make up this word, but this idea of your flugel binder is out there waiting for you. And you just have to figure out what that flugelbinder actually is. And so that's a really important lesson for all of you that are in flux right now. What is your flugelbinder? It's out there somewhere. But the difference between dreaming the dream and living the dream is the action you're willing to take. You know, you've got to make the investment in yourself and time, you know, sometimes in money, of course. You've got to make that investment in you. It's really important. I mean, I did it. I was working, God, I mean, I feel like it was 18 to 20 hour days for a good year and a half between my full time job and trying to launch this thing that I do now. And I gave up a lot of things. I sacrificed a lot of stuff. We were talking about it before the podcast, you know, giving up holidays, giving up time with friends to try to make this thing work, to try to make my flugel binder work. So I would say to people out there, your flugel binder is out there. You can actually Google this scene from cocktail, just type in flugel binder cocktail. It'll come up. It's 90 seconds. And it's really inspirational for all of you that are out there wondering like, what the hell am I doing?
1: That's awesome. On that note, is there anything else out there that you are doing that you want to let people know about?
2: Yes, actually I again I appreciate this as well. And I do also want to just say there's another chapter in my book, and we won't we won't get into this lesson now, but if you love the musician who loved the color purple, like I love him, Prince, there I have a great chapter about Prince and Suzanne Vega. You mentioned Pretty and Pink, I think earlier. She had a song on the in Pink soundtrack, Left to Center, but she wasn't huge like Prince was at the time. And she had a song called My Name is Luca, and he heard the song. And there's this great story that comes from it. You can Google Prince and Suzanne Vega, and you can see the handwritten note that he delivered to her. But I have a great chapter on that. And if you love Prince, I would highly recommend giving it a reader, at least Googling Prince and Suzanne Vega and seeing a little bit of the story behind it. Dead Poets Society. Uh, John Keating played by Robin Williams, another person we left, you know, lost way too soon. And he plays this, uh, this, this high school teacher at this elite boarding school, English professor, I should say at this elite boarding school where all the kids have been taught to walk in a straight line, do what you're told. Your family says you're going to be this. This is what you're going to be. You know, God forbid you actually go into any kind of creative arts. That would be nonsense. Of course, according to the families. And uh, John Keating, Rob Moon's character, says, boys, you can be any- anything you want. We all know the Carpe Diem sees the day, I think. Right. But there's something bigger that he says. To him. he says, no matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. And this is really important because in the 80s when I was growing up, if I wanted my words and ideas out to the world, I had to use my Community Times newspaper in my little town. Maybe 13 people would read my words and ideas if I was lucky. And so now in the palm of our hand, we can get our words and ideas out to the world. We don't have to be an athlete, a politician, a celebrity, a world leader. It's the great equalizer in the palm of our hand. Our words and ideas can get out right now in this moment. That's talk to talk, but you got to walk the walk. And for me, that's, you know, it's taking action. And for me, it's animal rescue. I I grew up with a family that was huge animal rescue advocates and I rescued my boy Bodie. Again, who was named after Patrick Swayze's character in Point Break. <laughs> Love him to death. He's a you know a 78, 80-pound pit mix. Was found on the street at three months old on the sidewalk by a couple of cops. He was paralyzed, couldn't go to the bathroom, was dying. He was dying. And uh, went to a rescue called Wonder Paul's rescue in Fort Lauderdale. I I knew the person who ran their organization. I called her and I said, listen, this is my guy. I just have this feeling. She said, we don't know if he's going to make it. He made it and he's been with me two and a half years now. And I got him in August of 2020 and I went through a rough patch in March of 2021. My girlfriend of a year and a half got an RV, left and lives somewhere in the woods in Oregon now. By the way, very happy for her. This was her journey. One thing I really believe as I get older too is everybody has their journey. Don't get in the way of it. Even if it means that you have to sacrifice, allow people- to live their life and go on their path and their journey. It's so important. And so I supported her 100%, but it was hard for me, you know, and she left. And then uh, a month later, my stepmom, who'd been in my life 40 years, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She died three weeks later. And then my mom died of Alzheimer's in July of 2021. So I had a hundred day window where my life was like a country song. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was, it was yeah. rough, but all along Bodhi was with me. And no matter how down I was feeling or how I was feeling, he was right there to lift me up. And so I say that Rescued is the best breed. And I donate a portion of the proceeds from my book sales and speaking gigs to Wonder Paul's Rescue, which is the rescue that saved Bodhi. It's so important. There's so many of them that need homes. Please adopt, don't shop.
0: Yeah, I'm going to second that message as well. Basically, all of my friends at this point all have rescues. And it's been that way for at least a decade or so.
1: I feel like rescues always have the best personalities. Like all the rescue animals I've known have always been like the best animals. Like maybe cause they've lived a little, cause they've
2: seen some shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've seen some shit <laughs> and they're very, they're yeah. just resilient. They're resilient. And you know, all yeah. they need is a chance. All they need is an opportunity. All they need is somebody to open up their door and bring them in their home and give them a chance. That's all they're asking for. And when we do that, it's so rewarding for you and for them. And they will bring you so much joy. I can tell you, like, I just, all I want to do is hang out with this dude. That's it. That's all I want to do. And if I can't bring him, I don't go. One good thing about the area I live in, you know, being in a beach area in Florida is that it's very dog friendly. I can take him everywhere. I take him to the breweries with me. I take him to restaurants, wherever I go, I can take him. He loves it. I love it. And quite frankly, I'm not going without him. So that's it.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, this was a really fun conversation and we touched on way more even than I thought we were going to. So that was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to cut this down somehow.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, just go with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're very freewheeling on the podcast. We are not a brief <laughs> podcast by any means. No. Uh, so where can people find you or what would you like them to check out of yours? They're curious about reading or hearing more. From-
2: yeah, so com C-L-E-W-S, uh, just like blues clues not spelled that way, but just so you know, chrisclues.com. And that's my website where you can find all the information on me from my books to my videos to my keynote speaking gigs, how to reach me for keynote speaking gigs for your organization as well. And uh, social media, it's uh, at chrisclues80s on Instagram. I somehow, someway got at 80s pop culture on Twitter. I have no idea how I got that, but I will sell it for the right price maybe. I don't know. Who knows? I don't
0: know. (laughs) I was going to say, better sell it while the
1: selling's good. At80s, We might might need to buy that one. (laughs) Yeah,
2: at 80s pop culture. I could not not <laughs> believe it was available but i got that one and then chris clues on all the other social media as well and my books are on amazon kindle and paperback and uh, also can get ebooks on barnes Noble and others and then of course in some stores i'm not sure exactly where because they don't tell me who buys the books and puts them on their shelves but somebody is so that's a good <laughs> thing yeah
1: <laughs> i'm gonna look around and see if i can find them i bet in la there's probably many stores that carry them uh, if
0: you find it Please let me know and take a picture. I will. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. This was an absolute treat.
2: Thank you so much. Again, I really appreciate the megaphone without guys like you. uh, There's just, there's no way that I could have a voice and I truly, truly appreciate it.
0: Oh, thank you. It's our pleasure. Yeah. Stay rad, everybody. And that was our wonderful conversation with Chris Clues. That's right. We couldn't confine this podcast merely to one Chris. We had to have an additional Chris. We don't have our next episode of When We Were Young planned quite just yet. The When We Were Young podcast is going to go on a brief break here. For just a few months, we hope to catch up on sleep, we hope to catch up on life and work in the various projects that we have going on, and we look forward to coming back super refreshed a couple months from now to cover more wonderful topics. So anyone out there, if you hear us during this brief break, we would love any suggestions you have for topics you want us to cover when we return.
1: Yes, please.
0: (laughs) The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcast product. I have been Seth, and he has been Chris. Yeah. John.